This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 274 tonight. We have a special episode. We are joined by our buddy, Dr. Andrew Gallimore. Uh, his new book is out. It's called Reality Switch Technologies. I have a copy right here. Just finished reading it about a month ago. And if you haven't checked out his first book, I highly recommend it. Alien Information Theory. Nice hard book. Um these books are actually not just well written, but they are, they have tons and tons of cool, um, you know, there's artwork, there's dialogue or there's, um, uh, diagrams. There's all sorts of interesting stuff. So check them out. I highly recommend it. Uh, you can go to Andrew's website at the bottom, uh, alieninsect.com and you can buy the book there. You can go on Amazon, uh, but yeah, I highly recommend checking those out. We have done a few episodes with Andrew previously. You can check those episodes down below. Uh, we've also done a Patreon, a couple Patreon segments with Andrew as well. So you can check out our Patreon. It's just $2 a month. Uh, the Linktree link is down below. I want to give a special shout out to uh, Aubrey, who created us a new logo. Uh, as soon as we're done, I will add the link to his stuff. He is a uh, graphic designer, and he does all sorts of animation and stuff like that. Uh, so show Aubrey some love, and if you need anything done in that realm, check him out. Uh, what else do we have here? Uh, yeah, Leah is joining us tonight. Check out at Leah Prime on Twitter. Um, she also has a Substack, and also check out Andrew's Substack. I forgot. Please check out Andrew's Substack. I have the link down below as well. Uh, follow Shane on Twitter, and all the links are down below. If you want to support Mind Escape, we have a link tree. Uh, our other podcast, the Roswell UFO Symposium, there's a link tree, um, and yeah, everything's down below. So, but without further ado, welcome back on the show, Andrew. How are you? Thanks for having me again. I'm pretty decent. Thank you very much. Can't complain. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we were trying to set this up uh, about a month ago, and then the holidays happened and everything, but glad to have you back on. Um, and we're less than a month away from the release of our documentary, which you are actually uh, a large part in, um, which our documentary is called as within so without from ufos to dmt the link to the trailers down below it will be premiering at the roswell ufo expo in march as well as it will be featured at the roswell incident film festival in july but um the reason why 
uh, I got you involved with that is because I wanted to do something that had a little bit of a crossover uh, between the whole DMT psychedelic entity thing and um, aliens and UFOs. And I think that mm-hmm. obviously your first book, Alien Information Theory, is a, a great speculative guide um, on how we would make contact with some sort of alien intelligence and uh, the mechanisms that would lead to that, right? So, but I want to talk about your first or your second book that just came out, Reality Switch Technologies, which I actually liked even more because it was a little bit more diverse. You kind of go into more of the different compounds and the mechanisms and everything like that. Was that the goal is to just expound off of everything you already did with DMT or what was the, the background behind that? Yeah, I think, um, well, I mean, I've read a lot of books on psychedelics over the years, as you can imagine, but, and I've also developed, you know, for myself, at least you know, over the last 20 years, I developed uh, kind of a, a deep kind of, a deep kind of understanding of, of what's going on in the brain. This is kind of important to me is, is trying to. Um, not just focus on the experience, you know, the phenomenology, which a lot of people try to just focus on that, you know, what, what actually happens to you, which of course is amazing, right. With, with DMT. Uh, but I'm really interested in trying to get in, get in deep into the brain and actually work out what's actually going on when, when this sim- these simple molecules interact with your, your nervous system and they interact with these receptors in the brain. How does that, that simple, molecule protein interaction um, translate and elicit these remarkable change in consciousness. So how do you bridge that gap between um, molecule receptor interactions and changes in the structure and dynamics of your world? Uh, And and, and can we develop kind of a, a unified model of how that all works in the brain? And I think there's been so much research over the last really of the last decade uh, and built upon research that's been going on for many decades before that but nobody had really put it all together so to speak in a way that a non-scientist could understand i mean you can pour over the literature and kind of piece it together yourself but it took me you know, a, de- a decade or two to kind of achieve that. Um, so I wanted a book and I knew there was kind of a gap in the market. This book didn't exist. You know, that's why I wrote it. A book that you could read and develop a really deep understanding for what's actually, how these molecules actually work. You know, everyone knows they interact with the 5-HT2A receptor, right? But very few people can tell you why when you stimulate that particular receptor subtype, um, you get these dramatic changes in, 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 in structure and dynamics of your world model, of, of, your, of your consciousness, uh, of your experience of self and of the world. Um, that's a difficult connection to make, and it involves several levels of organization. You have to think about the fundamental interactions going on at the receptor level you also need to think about how does this affect the way that neurons behave right um how do how does it change the way that neurons uh, communicate with each other the way that they share information uh, how does that then relate to 
the behavior of these large networks of neurons from which your uh, world model, your ex your own personal subjective world is constructed. Um, so, so yeah, so that's basically what I try to do with the book is, is look at, first of all, develop this, um, this overall model of how your world is constructed. Um, so taking you through all of the fundamental neuroscience, everything you need to understand what's going on, you know, just in your normal waking world, you know, when you're not under the influence of a psychedelic. Uh, and once you've kind of established that neurological underpinning, uh, that foundational uh, level of understanding, then you can ask questions like what, what happens if we perturb this system using this type of molecule you know, and this particular pathway? Um, how does your world model change? So this takes to the classic psychedelics, for example, you're stimulating, you're, you're perturbing this, this system, this world building machinery, as I refer to it, in a particular way, and it leads to particular types of effects. And then we can also bring in other molecules like ketamine uh, or the tropane alkaloids and we can we can perturb or salvinorin yes this world shattering molecule uh reality shattering astonishingly psychedelic powerful world switching agent um you know all of these molecules are unified uh in that they they all perturb this world building machinery in the brain but but each in their own distinct way they each approach from a, a different mechanism um, and, and which is why they have kind of distinct effects, but we could all, we can bring them all together as being kind of psychedelic, uh, which is, uh, I kind of define as a, uh, a molecule that alters the structure and dynamics of your world and self model, if you like. Um, um, so that's basically the idea of the book is to bring all of that, that whole story together. So if you read the book, you will, I think, um, and read it slowly. It's not an easy read as I'm sure you're aware. Um, but it is. It doesn't require you to be, you know, a scientist. Um, as long as you've got kind of high school biology, um, or if you're willing to spend a couple of hours googling um, a few basic uh, fundamental ideas in biology, then you can you can understand the book, and you will come away from it, I think, with a really good, deep, and satisfying, hopefully, understanding of, of what psychedelic molecules do and why they do what they do, and why we're so fascinated by what they do. Yeah, you you said, uh, you, you know, you wrote it for the average person. I'm just thinking to myself, there's a, I mean, it is, you know, you can get through it, but I think it took me being interested in like, okay, how does the 5-HT2A receptors work in this process of psychedelics and, you know, the whole serotonergic aspect of it, you know, like it took me a while to get into that, cause I, but once you are in on psychedelics, I think... If you're a curious person, I think you do start to gravitate towards, well, what's happening biologically? And then also, what what does this mean in terms of like the nature of reality, right? So I think that that's mm -hmm. the big, um, the, the, the main thing about your book is you try and marry those two things together, which would be... Um, I mean, you're not you're not out there preaching some theory of everything, but in the book, no. like I said, you try and tie in together, okay... You know, we know these compounds are, some of them are produced in our body. We know how these receptors work. However, this, you know, this idea of mind and experience and everything is very weird and bizarre. It does not align with our standard model of physics as, an, as a material thing. So, uh, yeah, that's probably what I enjoy most about this is, is also like the diagrams. And, 
you know, I think the new one, you go more into like the, the GABA opioid and all of those different receptors. You mentioned salvinorin. And I think yeah. last time you were on, we, we went into a whole part about the tropanes and how you think tropanes might um, induce more of visions of things that aren't there as opposed to a tryptamine, which is almost just playing off of what we already see. So the tropane thing might be a little different in the sense you might actually be seeing things that aren't there, um, which we can talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tropanes, they tend to elicit what's called true hallucinations, uh, which are kind of indistinguishable. So with with, with tryptamine-induced visions, hallucinations probably isn't even the right word. They're normally, you're normally very much aware that what you're seeing isn't uh, not necessarily not real, but uh, isn't normal, so to speak. Um, you, you are you have you maintain insight to use psychiatric parlance, and you you you're, you're fully aware that what you're seeing is not what you you, you normally expect to see when you when you're awake. The, the 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 visions kind of announce themselves. No one's going to smoke DMT and think not realize that they're having a psychedelic experience right um but with with the tropanes the tropanes are kind of a little bit sinister they creep up on you um you lose you lose that insight you enter a kind of a dreamlike state that's disconnected from the environment in 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 some ways um um like you're in a waking dream so you see things you can actually the visions are much more stable and often seem perfectly lifelike and perfectly real you know you can find yourself partying with 50 people in your bedroom uh, for an hour or two and then suddenly you have a moment of clarity and awareness and you realize that you know none of that ever happened would um, you make the distinction of that maybe tryptamines allow you to see more of like a superposition state or just something that's more like the true nature of reality versus let's say a tropane as you're mentioning which could be like the inspiration for people um, coming up with the idea of like gods or goddesses or uh, metaphysical realms and things of like that nature, like things that aren't actually there as opposed to, like I said, like a tryptamine, which is definitely playing off of what we already, like our pattern recognition and everything like that. Well, I, I, what I try and do, I try and avoid getting into or making ontological assertions about real and not real in terms of the experience i think this is a trap that many people fall into um, is to say that the normal waking world is real uh, and anything that um, diverges from that model of that version of reality is unreal but that's a mistake for a number of reasons firstly the world that you experience as i always say the world you experience is always this this model that's being constructed by your brain um so in a sense all experienced worlds whatever their nature whether they are normal waking life kind of adaptive models of the environment or not they're all made of the same stuff they're all made Fundamentally, they're all constructed as patterns of neural activity, unified patterns of neural activity, which for reasons we don't really understand, have this quality of subjectivity. There's something it's like to experience. There's something it's like uh, to exist within uh, these worlds. But these worlds are always built by the brain. And when you take a psychedelic, what's happening is this world model that's being constructed by your, your cortex uh, is changing. The model is changing um that doesn't mean that the model is 
wrong or uh, is untrue or is more true or, you know, I, I, I always sidestep questions about whether we're seeing true reality. I don't think we really have access. Uh, we don't really have access to the the true nature of the the external environment or whatever that might be, whether there really is an, an external environment. I mean, these are all uh, kind of deep philosophical questions, but I think you can get, you can tie yourself in knots uh, if you try and uh, make a sharp distinction between um, the real world or the true world and, and, and hallucinatory world. You know, hallucinations really are a, non-adaptive perceptions they are versions of your world model that perhaps are not adaptive um, they don't possess immediate survival advantage uh, whereas the normal waking world does it allows you to navigate mm -hmm. and um, to survive and to reproduce you know in whatever th there is out there you know whatever the environment really is we don't really know what the external world is truly like. Um, all we do is we we have this model that is somehow mapped using sensory information um, to the environment and, and it works. It's, it's a functional model. Yeah, so I was kind of just yeah. I was mm. kind of just referencing almost like the Donald Hoffman's case against reality style playing mm -hmm. in with the psychedelic stuff. But, That's kind of just what I was going getting at. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean I'm a big fan of Donald Hoffman. I mean I, I've been reading I would say I, I, I knew him before he was famous, so to speak. I have um, I was reading his paper before, before, yeah. So it's kind of annoying now. Everyone's everyone's into Hoffman. Have you heard of Have you read Donald Hoffman's books? Yeah, of course I read his book. You know, it was um, like decades ago when he when he was just writing obscure papers. You know, when he's kind of uh, um, fermenting these ideas that have become more mainstream now. Uh, it really struck me as being a really a uh, powerful way of viewing the world um, in that the, the model is not, the brain has no yardstick by which to measure the, tr measure the truth of its model. And it might not even want to build true models of the environment. All it wants to do, all it can do is build a model that, that is functional, that is, is adaptive. That's the only thing, you know, this is the selective pressure is to build a model that works uh, and the brain can never know whether it's somehow an accurate or precise model of the environment. Uh, so that's a really powerful way of thinking about psychedelics as well. It avoids you having to really get into these horrible kind of ontological questions of is it real or is it not real? Because um, then you have to start asking, well, what do you mean by real? <laughs> not real. I mean, the experience is real. You know, when you are, uh, you know, when you're at the peak of a DMT trip, um, you are experiencing that. That is as real as it is when you're in the normal waking world. It's built from the same stuff. It's an astonishingly different, you know, you know remarkably different kind of experienced world. But it's built from the same stuff as your normal waking world. Um, so, in so in the book, really, what I try to do is focus on, you know, that model. How is that model constructed? How has that model changed? Whilst avoiding getting into questions about are the machine elves conscious or do they continue to exist um, after the trip ends? Were they there before waiting for you? These are really cool questions and I don't have definitive answers to them, unlike some people do, you know, as we've, as we've learned in the last few weeks. Some people have very definitive. They're very we'll get to poor. the beef. 
that hot oh, online God. beef. We'll get to this to the beef. <laughs> Incredible, yeah. um, Andrew. First of all, uh, I, I'm so delighted to speak with you, partly because I've loved and very much been inspired by your work, and also led a reading group. We just finished Alien Information Theory at the end of January. Um, one of the things I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on, and I have read your Substack, but would love to hear them in real time as well, is on ketamine. Now, obviously, ketamine has gotten an enormous amount of attention recently, particularly in America, where it's increasingly being used and provided and prescribed for off-label psychiatric use. This idea that it can assist with anxiety, PTSD, complex trauma, depression, etc. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on um, the uptick in this use and then also if you could talk a little bit about how it differs from a classical psychedelic like psilocybin or lsd yeah i mean i'm i'm a i'm, I'm kind of a big fan of, of ketamine i think it's a very interesting molecule um there is i mean there is a me too <laughs> yeah um it, it it's 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 complicated and that's what's kind of beautiful about ketamine is it's not a simple molecule. Uh, I mean, structurally, it's not that complicated, but I mean, in terms of its effect, it 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 has a um, it seems to have these kind of plateaus of effects. Um, at low doses, it tends to be more psychedelic-like. Uh, I would call it an atypical dissociative psychedelic, something like that. I know some people don't like to call it psychedelic, and people complain saying it's not a psychedelic. Um, well, I think it is uh, at low doses, certainly um, the the changes in neural activity that you um, that are observed after someone takes a low dose of, of ketamine are very similar to what you see with the classic psychedelics. So you see this um, disruption of world model. Uh, the, um, the world model becomes more fluid and more dynamic, less predictable. These are the kind of effects we see with the classic psychedelics as well. Um, um, but, but through an entirely different mechanism um, to what you get with, with, with the classic psychedelics. So here you're looking. So classic psychedelics are these 5-HT2A agonists, partial agonists, uh, and they affect, they're stimulating certain deep layers of the cortex. And this is how they kind of disrupt this world model. Um, whereas the, the whereas ketamine works by acting at a completely different receptor type, the, the glutamate NMDA receptor, which it doesn't activate, it actually blocks. Um, and this leads to some quite complex effects. These NMDA receptors are found in, well, most types of neurons really, um, but they're found in populations of excitatory neurons. So these are the neurons that are kind of activating each other and stimulating activity in the cortex. Uh, but they're also found in inhibitory neurons, which are these uh, dense networks of neurons that sit between the excitatory neurons and kind of rein in neural activity. So you have this push-pull effect, this balance that the brain has to maintain called the EI balance, the excitation inhibition balance. Uh, and that's important to maintain a kind of a good level of, of, uh, and to maintain control over your neural activity. And so ketamine is actually affecting both of these. It's, it's affecting NMDA, blocking NMDA receptors on both excitatory and inhibitory uh, neurons. Now, 
So, um, so, so what happens at low doses is it, it mainly affects these inhibitory interneurons. So it, it stops uh, these inhibitory neurons from working properly. So it stops the inhibitory neurons inhibiting the excitatory neurons. So you get an increase in neural activity. It's like a two negatives equals a positive is a good way to think. Yeah, You're, it's disinhibition. Um, so when you give someone a low dose of ketamine, um, you see an, an increase in neural activity. You see you see very similar kind of behavior in, in the brain that you see with with the classic psychedelics. Um, you get a more flexible and dynamic and less predictable world model. And you also get an increase in sensitivity to sensory information as well. So this is kind of like psychedelic. Um, so I would call it a, a kind of a psychedelic. However, what's more complex about ketamine is when you start to push to the higher doses. So once you slip past the kind of psychedelic levels, you actually start to inhibit these excitatory neurons themselves um, um, by inhibiting the NMDA receptors on those neurons. So then you get this strange kind of cortical activity where you have the inhibitory neurons are being inhibited and dietary neurons being inhibited and you get this strange kind of emergent activity of the cortex where it it shifts kind of pulses back and forth between a very um um in, inhibited anesthetized almost state where you are basically from the earth um, this would be what you would call a dissociative state or dissociative anesthetic state. Uh, but then it flips back uh, every few seconds to a very high um, activity state, high complexity state, um, which is similar to a psychedelic state. So it's kind of, you're kind of doing this back and forth, back and and it's a very unusual type of neural activity, um, a kind of unique pattern, type of emergent um, neural activity, uh, which is probably responsible for a kind of a K-hole effect when you go kind of a little bit too deep. It seems to be quite a narrow threshold between the psychedelic effects and these more uh, dissociative anesthetized effects. So, so yeah, so ketamine is, it's, it's, it's in many ways, it's kind of messy. Um, uh, and then it does have these these plateaus that you don't see with um, with the, with the classic psychedelics. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? Yep, that was a, a wonderful, thorough question. Um, the the second part was more a, a personal inquiry into your views on the uptick in its application for psychiatric mm. purposes. Yeah, I mean. I, I don't, um, you know, kind of in, in my work, in my research, I don't focus too much on the clinical side of things. But what's the good thing about ketamine is we know that it is, it's fairly short acting. Um, mm -hmm. So you can, uh, it's not like with, if you give somebody psilocybin or LSD, where you have to deal with this for, um, you know, for several hours has its own benefits and being being able to go kind of deep uh, with, with ketamine you have you have much more control over that it seems to be um you know you, you can control the levels of the experience much better than you can with with, with the classic psychedelics um it's also um has 
again, similar to psychedelics, there is good evidence for, for neuroplasticity effects, positive neuroplasticity effects as well. So it might actually be changing um, the fundamental connections in the brain uh, with use. Um, in terms of the the antidepressant effects of, of ketamine, that's it. That's definitely real. You know, rapid antidepressant effects, much quicker than you get with um, kind of classic antidepressant drugs, such as the the SSRIs, like Prozac, for example, where you have this delay of you know two to three weeks before you start to, uh, or even longer before you actually start to see the benefit with, with ketamine. It seems to be very fast acting. Um, I don't think that's actually well understood. And you actually to, to that point, um, so SSRIs, if, you, if you're taking SSRIs, people can still do ketamine therapy because there's no interaction there, correct? That's a good point, yeah. So with, with SSRIs, what, what seems to be happening I remember maybe a few months ago, there was a, a paper with a lot of attention about the, the serotonin hypothesis of, uh, of yeah, depression. the depression. Yeah. I think, yeah. And I think a lot of people misunderstood or a lot of people misunderstand the serotonin hypothesis or understand mm -hmm. what SSRIs are actually supposed to be doing. People thought that the idea was that they are raising your serotonin levels, right? Uh, and that the reason you're depressed is because your serotonin levels are too low. Uh, that is, 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 is probably not correct. And if that were the cause of your depression, then you should expect reasonably your depression to be um, ameliorated um, and levels of depression reduced uh, just a few hours after taking the drug, right? As the levels of serotonin actually rise very quickly, but the antidepressant effect takes longer to materialize. And that's because um, it requires a change in the, 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 uh, the expression of certain receptors. So, so over time, by increasing levels of serotonin, your, your brain kind of adjusts um, and, and changes the expression of, of various receptors. And that is probably what's responsible for the antidepressant effects of SSRIs. It's not that it's just increasing serotonin. Yeah. I mean, I've taken um, them before for my OCD. They definitely had a positive effect. Um, it's not like they don't work, you know, like there's this idea, yeah. like you mentioned this myth that's like, oh, just abandon that for this, or they were wrong the whole time. Like, I don't necessarily think that's the case, but it's like for like OCD specifically. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a chemical imbalance thing. It's more of like a no. thought loops that get embedded over time that um, you they're just bad, bad thinking habits, if you will. Or, or I don't know how to explain it. I, I've written I've written this out before when I had these moments or like epiphanies um, in altered states of what's actually going on in my own head. But, yeah, it seems to be these thought patterns or thought loops that become kind of on a, you know, turnaround and they just keep playing over and over and over. And it's up to you, the person who has the OCD or the compulsive thinking or whatever to break out of that. It's not, it's, it's not about from my understanding. And, and like I said, doing my own research and looking into my own mind, I don't believe it's, it's a chemical thing. Um, and I'm not saying that no, the depression no, thing no. isn't, but yeah, I, I think that that was the myth for a long time. It's like when I remember 
uh, when I first found out I had it in my mid-20s, so we're talking 15 years ago, oh, take this. This will make you feel better. And then I ended up taking eight different SSRIs, and none of them worked, and we're still trying to figure out, like, what's going on? Well, it wasn't about the medicine. It's about the CBT, the therapy, the ability to get outside of yourself. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would I would agree with you, too, on what you're saying about the SSRIs because they do have a positive effect but i mean to what level i don't know yeah i think you know the brain is very it's very plastic in that it can it can change um you can certain patterns of neural activity uh, can become almost like habitual in that they are strength the more that certain pathways are used um the more the stronger they become so this applies to learning to play the piano right eventually over time those neural pathways that control these complex muscular um motor patterns become uh, more embedded and you can play the piano very quickly almost unconsciously um and unfortunately that can also apply to ways of thinking the ways of thinking about your your self-perception uh, and if you get yourself into a, uh, you know, this negative thinking, these loops of, uh, of of negative thoughts about yourself and of your life, and that can become kind of ingrained, if you like. Yeah, I think a ball um, of yarn is actually a good analogy. That's what I've written down before. Like a ball, like it just keeps right. getting, if it gets d- down towards the middle of that ball of yarn, it's going to be a tough time getting that thing untangled, you know? Exactly. And so this is what we, we think anyway, or the kind of the prevailing hypothesis about, what psychedelics are doing is they're loosening up they are kind of uh, the make it's like it's kind of like if you've got a piece of glass right and it's it's in a very it's very rigid uh, and it's in a particular shape but if you heat that glass up it becomes kind of more kind of plastic and fluid and then you can kind of readjust it into a new shape and then as it cools uh, it will set into that new shape so the idea is you're you're bringing the brain the cortex into this kind of hot state where it's much more fluid and much more dynamic these ingrained patterns of connectivity become loosened and you can start to establish new patterns of more positive patterns of connectivity so this is why the the, the psychotherapeutic side of it you know the the the, the uh, the psychotherapeutic support that comes with um, the the psychedelic therapy is, is is important. It allows you to establish more positive, to break out of the old ways of thinking, loosened up by psychedelics, and then establish more positive patterns. And then, as the psychedelic wears off, hopefully those more positive patterns will become uh, ingrained. So that's kind of the prevailing wisdom there of how of how the classic psychedelics work now with ketamine i think it's um you can imagine something similar but there seems to be much more rapid clinical effect you know just with intranasal ketamine without you know, undergoing a full-blown psychedelic uh, or or dissociative anesthetized experience you can get these very rapid antidepressant effects of ketamine so there's still a lot we don't understand uh, you know i'm by far far from a, an expert on the, the etiology of depression but it's certainly true that there's a, there's a lot we don't understand about the mechanisms of, of depression there, it's almost certainly it's multifactorial there's a lot of things going on in in the brain uh, that causes depression and there's certainly a number of ways that you can you can you can manipulate that system and kind of break it out of those those negative patterns and kind of rearrange your brain so to speak rearrange those, those patterns of thought uh, and so i think yeah ketamine is just another tool 
uh, alongside the classic psychedelic, you know, very safe, uh, fast acting uh, um, tool that doesn't need to be taken every day for the rest of your life. And actually seems to somehow get at the root cause. Um, I think the problem with a lot of psychiatric medication is that they are treating the symptoms. They're making you feel better they might be elevating your mood temporarily but whether or not they're actually dealing with the the fundamental issue uh, deep down in those that complex pattern of neural connectivity uh, is is a different question entirely and i think psychedelics are probably the closest we've got um uh, in this or last century really uh, to a tool that can actually start to uh, deal with the fundamental uh, cause and the fundamental source of of of, of depression. Yeah, no, I, I, good point. Um, I was going to say my actually my daughter actually works at a clinic that does ketamine therapy as well too. My wife would have murdered me if I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, I had a question too. No, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Okay, I, I don't know a lot about this stuff. I'm new to it. I look, and it's important to me because I'm a combat veteran. Uh, P- PTSD. So my question is actually, what importance do you think ketamine therapy is for people with like trauma-related mental health issues? Is it disassociation an important part of that? That's a good question. I, don't, I I can't give you a definitive answer there, but you can imagine with with post-traumatic stress, you've got a similar. It's a different type of ingrained. Um, neural activity, right? With depression, it's about, you know, negative thinking about yourself, whatever, right? Whereas with PTSD, you can imagine that as being a, a, a different, it's, it's directed somewhere else. It's directed to the trauma, you know, reliving the trauma and, and, and experiencing the, the, um, the, the negative emotional response to that uh, trauma. But again, you can think about this is a, an ingrained pattern. The brain learns things very, very well, remembers things and attaches emotional affect um, to experiences. So, you know, that's obviously very important in our evolution is that we associate you know, the bad things that happen to us, all good things, but particularly bad things that happen to us, the brain will attach uh, emotions to them, um, um, which is obviously important in the future. Then if you encounter that same kind of situation again, you can remember how bad it was and how you need to avoid it. And that's obviously very, very useful if you want to avoid predators, for example, um, or if you want to avoid the same kind of situations that got you in trouble the last time it's good to attach a negative emotion to that do you think Uh, the ptsd though because he was in the war do you think Mm -hmm. that um living every day through like shellings and that 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 anxiety and fear every single day you're like creating that negative path or pathway or whatever we're talking about and then when they when when veterans come home uh, they're so used to being that on that alert awareness level. Maybe their amygdala has gone crazy or maybe something else, but, you know, something like yeah. that. Yeah, precisely. Uh, and, the, and the brain will also, there will also be kind of adaptive responses to that, that the brain will you know, attempt to reset, if you like, or readjust um, its level, so to speak. So there's, I think there's a lot of very complicated neural uh, behavior going on deep in the brain um and and so trying to get at that and 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 deal with it uh, and kind of reset the brain and bring it back to a more 
um, uh, stable and well-adjusted state, I think is is very difficult, particularly because these patterns can become so ingrained. So what's great about psychedelics is you can kind of loosen the whole system up, uh, make it much more plastic and fluid, so you can actually start to work with it more. Just like heating up a piece of, of glass, you can then start to, as I said, uh, adjust it. So I think there's it's not easy. This, this, it's not like you, if you have a psychedelic experience, you're suddenly going to be cured. Uh, from you know PTSD or from depression or anxiety or whatever, but it, it it brings you into a kind of primed state. It primes your brain uh, for these kind of adjustments, uh, these kind of resetting mechanisms. These are more valuable in that way. So you you, you definitely need the the experienced clinicians there as well. I think to really get the most of psychedelics. Awesome. Um, we got a couple questions from people, uh, one from our buddy, Kevin Churko, who's also a fan of yours. Uh, he said he wouldn't be able to, uh, check in live, but he wanted to know, um, regarding the audio, um, that, you know, the, obviously you have a visual, um, component of the DMT experience, but what about the audio component? Uh, and he's wondering what the hell's making those, if this is all part of the visual cortex, what's making all those sounds and synth sounds and delays and, um, and he wanted to know how can he download those <laughs> yeah yeah i mean this is um so obviously with with things like dmt um it is the visual aspect that people are most interested in right but 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 it definitely there is particularly at the the beginning of the trip before you become overwhelmed with the visual there's often a, a particular kind of kind of can't describe it but the high pitch you know, ringing yeah yeah that that kind of thing so so obviously whilst the the visual cortex is primarily affected here it there you know you have your visual cortex um kind of sitting at the back of your brain um your the auditory cortices are kind of at the side uh and then at the top you you have um where a lot of these sensations are kind of brought together and and unified um so so it's certainly not the case that dmt is only affecting the 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 visual cortices um there's no reason why it wouldn't also affect the auditory cortices to some degree and in fact a lot of what we don't understand is why why is the dmt such a visual experience for example whereas uh di diisopropyl tryptamine i think it is uh i forget or is it dipropyl tryptamine but one of them but very closely related molecule is primarily uh, auditory so here you get kind of a, a drop in the uh like a, uh, it's like the your auditory system is, is dropped down an octave everything becomes much lower and slower um so it's 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 an auditory hallucinogen, if you like. Um, some hallucinogens, I think it's um, maybe monomethyltryptamine. So this is like DMT, but with one of those methyl groups on the nitrogen removed. Uh, this is kind of a spatial hallucinogen. So it's it's visual, but not in the normal, not in that you actually see visions, but your perception of space space is altered. And we don't really understand why that is the case. Um, people have thought about it, looked at the kind of the um, the neural activation 
signatures and how it affects gene expression uh, in different parts of the brain and that kind of thing. But I don't think there's, there's a clear answer actually uh, yet as to why um, the visual aspects are much, much more prominent than the, the auditory aspects and why certain molecules might actually flip that. Uh, and give give a more auditory experience, but you know the your experience of a world is multisensory. You are you obviously experience. We are primarily visual creatures, so the vis our vision is by far our most important um, sense. Um, but uh, of course, the experience, the subjective world, also has an auditory component, and this can be uh, affected by um by psychedelics as well um but i think i guess with dmt you're so overwhelmed with the the visual aspect i don't think many people focus that much on the auditory aspect when you read trip reports um at the beginning of the experience people often describe this tone uh, but then you're into that once you kind of break through and you you're into this bizarre hyperdimensional world the People don't tend to report so much on the auditory aspects. I think what you need is a really good study that focused on the auditory aspect and says, forget about what you saw, if you can, and try to focus on what you hear. Um, because um, I, you know, that, I think that, that would be a, it's a, a largely unexplored avenue uh, of research is what's going on with the auditory and, and how the kind of languages that the these machine elves might be speaking and, uh, and that kind of thing. I think it's, it's a cool thing uh, to think about, but I just don't think we have um, much understanding of, of the auditory aspects of the, the psychedelic experience, to be honest. Interesting. Um, we've got another question from Figu or Figu. Um, does your causa sui grid theory necessitate a first cause God or an unmoved mover? <laughs> I'm not even sure I can even pass that. Um, uh, a first calls God. Well, I mean, he's talking about what did he call it? What kind of grid did he call it? Causa sui s u i grid theory. Okay, this, this is Latin, is it? Sounds like a philosopher. Um, <laughs> yeah, throwing in these Latin terms here. Um, well, I mean, in alien information theory, I posit, and again, this is not my worldview. I don't believe this to be necessarily the case, but I posit the idea of some advanced hyperintelligence that constructed this code um, from which our lower dimensional slice emerged. Um, so. I think it could go both ways. Uh, I, I don't think it requires necessarily. I mean, you, you, you're kind of faced with the same problem uh, in explaining the DMT worlds or with my model of the DMT worlds as you are, as, as any person is trying to make sense of our existence. It's easy to, uh, to kind of hand the problem to an omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent uh being that that created it all it's like um, panspermia you could say panspermia is where we came from but it doesn't ultimately answer the question where does life right come you're from? just pushing it back yeah yeah with panspermia you're pushing it back to another so well, okay we can't solve the problem of abiogenesis you know the construction of biology or the emergence of biology from 
from a non-biological system on Earth. So we'll just say that it came from somewhere else. Uh, but then you, you're faced with the same problem, but you've, you've pushed it away successfully to a different planet, uh, which might, you know, it might, that might help you in some ways. It might help you buy, might buy you some time if you don't think that life could have emerged on this Earth within the time constraints um, when life would have been, um, the Earth would have been habitable to living organisms. That might help there, but it doesn't get you to the root of the issue of, of where um where living organisms emerged from in the first place and i think it's it's the same kind of thing that we're, we're doing here is that we could say okay that there was some god we can call it god or we can call it some alien super intelligence that existed long before our universe um emerged um but i don't think we're any happier having said that i think we're still faced with well where did that God come from and what is our relationship to that so I think these are really fascinating things to think about I don't rule out the idea that we might um that our universe might I mean it's cool to think it's, it's also kind of terrifying right the idea that our universe emerged uh, or was programmed by some uh, astonishingly intelligent superpowers very very old uh, extremely advanced being. Yeah, chat GPT, um, that's who created. <laughs> well, there you go, right? I mean, we're, we're getting hints at the kind of the kind of intelligence, right? We're all um, just mid-journey um, art. Well, that that's kind of it. Uh, you know, Terence McKenna did say, you know, we are uh, we are we are embedded in some kind of work of art. And that's what I quote in, in alien information theory. And I think I, you get that sense when you when you use dmt you 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 are confronted with what appears to be an uh, an undeniable intelligence of unreckonable power um that it is it's it's easy to say okay this must be god i don't think necessarily it must be god but there is a real sense that you're dealing with something that is so intelligent that is so advanced that is so way beyond anything that we could conceive of existing that anything you could have imagined uh, uh, of existing before you, you you smoke the drug before you take the the medicine so to speak um that that in itself is 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 why dmt is so horrifying and appalling is that you are you're confronted with something that is that that just shakes your fundamental ont ontological foundations right uh, that we exist that we we are the the highest intelligence at least within our corner of the, the milky way um and that we do sit at the pinnacle of, of what intelligence looks like and then to be confronted with an intelligence that is orders of magnitude way beyond anything that our little human brain could ever dream of uh, is 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 horrifying um you know what what to do with that intelligence you could cast it as as a god figure if you like and say okay this is the the all loving creator our lord and savior or whatever uh, that might make you feel better but i don't think there's any real reason to believe that i think uh, it's just as likely that we're taught that we're dealing with an intelligence that emerged somewhere um emerged in some other orthogonal dimension in some orthogonal reality in some other place that has 
for reasons we don't really understand, has this deep connection to our reality, you know, that we are this very, very thin slice of this much larger, much richer and much more complex structure uh, within which these much older and more advanced intelligences have emerged. I don't think there's anything wooey or mystical or even that far out or wild about that idea. Um, that that there are other places within which much high levels of intelligence could have emerged. I mean, even if it was, mm. who gives a shit? Because we don't even know why we're here, right? This is weird. We're having this conversation through technology. Who are you? What am I? You know, like the fact that people don't even think about that on a day-to-day basis is the most bizarre thing of all to me is that people go through life as a cog in, in, in the machine and don't even think twice. And yet, you know, there's a small portion of society like us, you know, whether we're nerds or scientists or whatever, we're all thinking about this stuff constantly. So, uh, you know, to the people that think that we're weird or, uh, you know, woo woo or whatever, who cares? Back off. You know, <laughs> well, like... I agree. I mean, yeah, I, who, 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 who cares at all? And I, I certainly don't. And yes, we are. We, we become we exist within our little prosaic bubble um, and assume that this is what this is what reality is, right? This is just our little, but we, everyone knows that we, we're just this, this small green blue dot uh, in a very, very small corner of a vast universe. And that in itself makes us not insignificant necessarily, but makes us very, 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 a very small part of the, the full picture. Then if you add on the possibility of other places, other universes, other uh, dimensions of reality that we we just have no um, we have no con- conception of. You know, I, I describe in in one of my lectures recently. It's like if you were a a character within a uh, a nineteen nineties computer game or something, right? Uh, and that reality would be the way that reality is in laws of physics that would. That would ruin that uh, would be the way that you assumed reality was. You would you would have no conception of the fact that you were being programmed with, you know, by um, you, that you were being programmed by some inconceivable intelligence outside of the game that was controlling the physics. Uh, yet to us, that seems perfectly obvious right yeah you write some code uh, and you can control you can build these simulated worlds and to us it's kind of a relatively simple thing Um, any particularly savvy 15 year old now could probably uh, you know is good with computers could probably code some kind of simple game um, uh, and control the physics you know some kind of basic physics engine Um, to us it's it's not difficult Um, so if you try and imagine us as being within that system we are part of a quite a relic what we appears to us to be a kind of a complex game if you like uh, and we have no idea we have no way of conceiving what might be out there and what might actually be influencing us in the same way that we might you, know, you can change a line of code and you can alter the fundamental physics of this little universe that you're running on your laptop um the 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 character in the game would have no way of conceiving how that could possibly work it would be on it would be beyond their imagination 
it would be on the stranger than they can suppose right um so i think that's the way to think about it is imagine us being within that not i'm not saying that this is a simulation by the way uh, i'm not saying that but it's that kind of relationship if you like uh in that we have we simply have no idea uh, is what is going on outside of our little prosaic reality. And we can't make any judgments about the relationship between our reality and that reality, whether it is a programmer programmed kind of relationship or something very different. We simply don't know, which is why I always say uh, when you're, when you're, when you're confronted with an, an apparent an ostensible alien hyperintelligence in the DNT space, you need to be very careful uh, because they could well be, exactly who they say they are um they might not be um they might really just be wild fabrications of the cortex but i, I think we have to be very careful about dismissing these things as mere hallucination uh, when they have qualities that would argue against that i think um we could really be dealing with something that is truly beyond uh, our, uh, our our ability to conceive and i think that in itself is a is almost miraculous that we're, we 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 might be able to actually interface uh, with such a profound and advanced and old and um, you know astonishingly uh, sophisticated intelligence like that so i think yeah we yeah 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 <laughs> yeah we have to, we, have, we have to be careful about um just believing those that would say oh actually you know neuroscience tells you that's just hallucination your brain is amazing it can do amazing things you know this kind of promissory science of you know we can't really explain everything yet but don't worry we will and you know, it's like really it's boring too like to 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 anticipate what? that science is just going to answer everything at some point is it's the bo most bogus way out and i hate that and you'll see mm. a lot of that in a lot of the humanities because obviously with empirical science, you have a better uh, understanding of the metaphysics uh, of those fields, you know, but within the humanities, it's a lot more speculative and there's a lot less um, evidence. So I know Leah maybe wanted to ask a question. Go ahead, Leah. Yeah. Um, so my next question kind of rides the coattails of what you were just talking about around belief. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how your beliefs on um, DMT particularly may have changed over time. Um, I don't have they changed. I think they've matured. That <laughs> they've matured in that. Good. <laughs> uh, I'm less. I'm. I'm still as confounded by DMT as I was when I first smoked it twenty twenty years ago, maybe. Um, I still mm -hmm. don't feel that we've we've gotten to the bottom of it. I, I think we, we're 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 kind of we're still scratching the surface. I think uh, of of what DMT means, and I think we're we there's no way yet. Whilst we understand a lot more about what's actually going on in the brain, um, that's what I've kind of focused on in the, over the last decade mm -hmm. or so. What's actually going on in the brain? Um, how is our world model changed when you when you smoke DMT? I think that's one avenue of thinking. But in terms of the the ontology, um, whether these beings really are, whether really we really are dealing with 
um, intelligent, conscious beings that exist from their own side, that are just as unable to deny their existence as we are unable to deny ours. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think we're in a position to make any kind of judgment. I try and keep this middle ground, this agnostic, you know, I'm an, as I said, an elf agnostic. Um, I think as soon as you put yourself whoa, whoa, whoa. One that's what got you in trouble, bro. <laughs> That's what got you in trouble. Elf agnostic. Yeah, I'm an elf agnostic. What would Terence say? What, what would Terence say? Well, I think Terence, <laughs> well, despite what he might have said, I think he was also an elf agnostic, actually, from what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. he, ne he was never sure. made particular assertions about what he, he, he speculated about what we could be dealing with. Um, but I think as soon as you place yourself into one camp or another and you say, OK, this is just hallucination. It's just your brain making it up, blah, de, blah, de, blah, blah. Um, or if you go to the other camp, say this is definitely these are definitely demons um, or these are definitely plant spirits or these are definitely jinns or I don't know. Right. What, or, or some other creature of the netherworlds. Uh, once you do that, uh, once you place yourself in either camp, then, well, where do you go from there? You've already made up your mind, right? You already know the truth. Um, so what's the point in um, having a discussion? I always try to tread that middle ground uh, of agnosticism where I don't claim that we are dealing with actual autonomous conscious intelligences. And I certainly don't claim the opposite that we're not. Um, and to me, that seems to be the most responsible and rational really, uh, position to take, uh, bearing in mind what we actually understand and what we, we don't understand. Um, uh, and, and ultimately, I expect it will be the most productive as well. You know, in the end, it might turn out that we can explain absolutely everything about DMT without having to invoke um, autonomous intelligences. But it might turn out that we can't. And that we might have to sure. confront the unthinkable. Um, well, what for many people would be the unthinkable, uh, which is that not only are we not the only intelligence within this universe, but actually that we might be um, a very, very uh, on a very, very low level compared to intelligences outside of uh, our thin slice of reality with whom we can communicate. Right. I mean, can you imagine anything mm -hmm. more? Uh, anything more profound than that, the, that would be, you know, the, the greatest discovery in the history of humankind, right? I mean, fuck the wheel. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> we, we're talking about, you know, the, the discovery of, of uh, <laughs> I love wheels, by the way, for wheel lovers. Uh, but, you know, um, you know, just, you know, the idea that they're not only are there intelligences outside of our universe, not just in our universe. I mean, that I think most of us accept is almost a certainty. Uh, but um, not only are there intelligences outside of our universe or somehow alongside or our universe in some way, orthogonal to our universe, not only do they exist, but that we actually have a very simple means of actually communicating with them that doesn't require firing pulses of electromagnetic radiation across the heavens and waiting for three quarters of a million years for a reply uh but some you know well, i mean that's a good that's a good point i mean this yeah. is actually what you're saying is actually very relevant to right now in the u.s we have all these balloons or god knows what the, the other three things were um 
people are looking to the skies, they're looking for the government to tell them yes, no, maybe so, mm-hmm. when we have this thing that we all produce in our bodies. But you can also uh, enjoy the exogenous version of it, which will put you in communication with something otherworldly. Now, whether that comes from within or it's external, nobody knows. But I think it's an important to point to point out, or it's important to point out that we're all looking to the skies when maybe we should be looking within or looking. Oh, uh, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, you know, the, the fact is, is that if there is intelligence elsewhere in the universe, which there almost certainly is the, 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 the vast proportion of that is likely to be post biological. The, the, the proportion of life that exists in this, this, very brief technological wet bodied wet brained phase uh, is is likely to be very very small because um once a, an intelligence reaches the stage where they can conceive of um becoming uh, some kind of artificial intelligence is where we are now, right? I mean, everyone's talking about artificial intelligence recent, recently, and everyone's familiar with the idea that we might one day be able to kind of dispense with our physical form and instantiate ourselves in some way in a uh, some kind of artificial intelligence form or some kind of digital form. Um, uh, once you reach that stage where you can conceive of it, you're probably only a few hundred years from actually achieving it. You know, these things tend to happen, they accelerate, right? Uh, so we might be much closer than we, we imagine. So the, the chances of catching a, an in, discovering an intelligence that are, that is kind of in the, still in the, that narrow technological phase, obviously before then, um, there's no way to communicate with them because they're going to be trapped on their little planet just like we are. Um, they're not going to be, if they're in a pre-technological phase, they're not going to be communicating across the heavens, right? So, but, what, but then you reach this technological phase where we are now, which might only last a few hundred years, where we can start thinking about communicating with the heavens. So, so that's kind of what the SETI program is looking for. It's looking for those beings that happen to be within that, that very brief temporal window uh, when they are when they can be communicated with once they transcend the biological form and become post biological uh, then they're going to be effectively completely transparent to the normal modes of communication uh, you're not going to be communicating them with with electromagnetic radiation uh, that is extremely unlikely Tens- we need to we need to disband SETI and, and invest all that money into DMTX. That's my proposal. Right, exactly. So, so the point so is, about, is when you, let's, sorry, let's, 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 are we going to talk about DMTX? Hold on, hold on. Let, let him finish his thought. I know he has. <laughs> yeah. okay, yeah, so my thought is simply that, is that the vast amount of intelligence and beyond is likely to be post-biological. Uh, and so we need to think about, well, what's the best way to communicate with the post-biological intelligence? Uh, and it, it's my position that um, psychedelics might be the way of achieving that somehow gating the flow of information from these normally transparent and hidden and apparently non-existent uh, beings um, that psychedelics might be the mode with which we communicate with them and and much quicker much more efficient than uh, trying to communicate across the cosmos that was my final thought yeah quantum entanglement or yeah Psy, 
whatever you want to call it. I'm I'm all on board with that, especially since they were going to call uh, ayahuasca telepathy initially because, and I know our buddies, the Dreaming Jaguars, participated in that experiment that David Luke was uh, doing with to see if they could, you know, connect uh, via that. So I, I find all that hey, very what? interesting. I don't, I don't know. I, I never saw the results. We had them on right after. I forgot. I think we were waiting to, for the paper to come out, so I'd have to go back and check with them. But yeah, um, but yeah, I do want to talk about uh, DMTX. So we had. Um, we had uh, Daniel McQueen on about a year ago for his release of his book, Psychedelic Cannabis, which highly recommend if you like cannabis and edibles and things like that. It's, it's a great guide um, for that. Uh, but, yeah, so, so why don't you tell us a little bit about DMTX, where is it going, what's going on with it, that whole thing. Yes, I was on a call with Daniel McQueen just last week, actually, uh, and with uh, Chris Timmerman, who's – heading up the the dmtx program at imperial college in london they've just completed the the first trial in humans uh, of dmtx um, for 30 minutes um uh, i think the paper will be published i think it's been submitted and accepted maybe so it should be out sometime this year hopefully uh and that will give obviously the kind of the full the full results one What's clear from, I mean, what was originally my aim, uh, going kind of back to the original idea back in 2015, and the, the paper I wrote with Rick Strassman, uh, the idea was that you can you can take this brief roller coaster trip of DMT uh, and and stabilize it, bring someone, induce somebody into the DMT state, maintain a stable brain concentration over time. Uh, and basically hold them within the space with the with the the ultimate aim being that the state would stabilize to some extent uh, over time as your brain uh, adapts to constructing this uh, altered world model uh, and that that would then allow you to perform much more extensive exploration and navigation and uh, experimentation within the space and you know you, you can imagine a whole new field of research would be opened up uh, by that, <clears throat> just like when we learned how to deep sea dive uh, or send those subs down to the bottom of the ocean, that allows you then to opens up a whole new field of research with you know so many thing, new things to explore and test and uh, and that kind of thing. So that was the idea originally, um, and uh, from what we know, um, I haven't seen all of the results yet. That seems to have been borne out in that what the Imperial team were able to do is to bring somebody into the space and actually maintain a consistent intensity of experience at several dose levels. Um, so they can bring someone into a, a more kind of shallow sub breakthrough state and hold them there, or they can push them all the way through into the full breakthrough visionary state um, and, and maintain that for about 30 minutes. And there's no evidence that it would, you know, it couldn't be extended for an hour or two hours or three hours. So we now have this this amazing technology, I think, um, that, that really opens up the DMT space. Now we can start to think about those those questions about, you know, can we establish two way communication with these machine elves? Can we ask them questions? Can we um, can we get information from them? Can we perform experiments in the space? All this kind of stuff. It's uh, it's kind of exciting. 
do you um do you still experiment yourself i mean obviously um I mean, you can say what you want or don't want to <laughs> but uh do you still uh experiment and when you experiment do you do you try to um investigate these worlds still or um um well i mean personally i mean i've had many experiences I i'll talk about the past um rather than the present but um i I, I'm I'm as um, I'm not a great psychonaut uh, in the uh, I haven't discovered some amazing technique to um, to navigate the space or to explore the space or any any more than anyone else who uses DMT reasonably frequently uh, or infrequently. Um, I think there's a lot of um, uh, what would you call it. Um, kind of underground science that goes on around which i think is quite valuable um beyond mm -hmm. aside from the kind of the academic stuff which uh, i was involved in you know the dmtx stuff i think that people are discovering now developing their own techniques for um for exploring the space you know using these these vape pens these um dab rigs i think they call them or uh, you know these e-liquids now which they dissolve the dmt in and, and you know, yeah i know uh i've never done it but i know that the dmt pens actually preserve it longer um from from what i understand dick khan who was a pretty intense psychonaut um gave us the the dl on that he said that i don't know how much longer but he said a, a lot longer so um i guess it pres yeah, pres yeah. preserves your stuff so yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's very effective. I'm all for alternate modes of administration. I think we we need to treat DMT as the technology that I think it, it is really, and and bring our best technological uh, tools to the table here. I don't think we should get too attached um, any particular mode of administration. I know some people have kind of bad feelings about you know injection or um or, or bringing in electronic equipment to try and to, to to administer dmt i don't see that as a problem at all i think we should it's i, I see that as being much more respectful um to the to the dmt experience itself uh, in that we are trying our best um to not just kind of burst into their realm for a few seconds and then you know, for a couple of minutes, you know, look around wide eyed and say, what the fuck, man, this is cool. And mm -hmm. then bugger off again. Uh, but actually to develop it as a technology and learn to use it. I think that's all part of, of the process of developing DMT as a technology. And I think we should embrace any new techniques that people discover uh, for for navigating and maintaining uh, our, our presence within the space for much longer periods of time, whether it's using this infusion technology, which is not going to be accessible for 99% of the population. Uh, but certainly these vape pens are, uh, and they're much safer as well. And much, you have much better control. You're not burning it. You're not, you don't have uh, naked flames to worry about. Um, you can do it, you know, have this, this small device that is very safe. It's not going to blow up if it's a good quality one. Um, and you can, you can redose at intervals. Uh, and main can kind of keep yourself within that within that within that level so i think yeah i'm all for dmt vape pens but I, you should make them yourself i mean you should i don't think people should be buying them off the internet no, i think it's, it's so well, like anything else internet. you know test your that shit DMT, if you know. if you are getting it test from 
yeah. yeah, if you're getting it from anything that's, you know, like obviously cannabis, mushrooms, if you're uh, well-versed psychonaut, those are pretty easy to investigate. But when it comes to powders and things like that, especially given uh, the state of fentanyl and people chopping up fentanyl and all sorts of things, just test your shit. I've had friends die. Yeah. Uh, I've had friends of friends die. Lots of people I know uh, my community growing up. So yeah, just test your shit. Um, but listen, Leah's got to bounce out here. We're going to continue on for a little bit, but, uh, I just wanted to let Leah go gracefully as she requested. Thank you. And thank you so yes. much, Leah, for, uh, joining us. I know she would have some good questions for Andrew and, uh, I enjoyed being in Leah's book club where we read alien information theory. Um, so check out Leah online at, at Leah prime on Twitter. Uh, she has a Substack, and she also does a podcast uh, on YouTube called The Invisible Night School uh, Weekly. So check that out as well. Thank you, Mike. Andrew, help. thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank and, you. of course, Shane, thank you. Leah, thank you, it's always good to see you. I, I'm having some back spasms, so that's why I'm kind of wiggling around. You're fine. That's why I couldn't sit down. So I'm going to bounce as well. It's great to meet you, and thank you for answering that question. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, Shane. Go get your back taken care of. All right. Nerd time. No, I'm just joking. But I do want to get to um I do want to get to some of the other stuff that I uh mentioned earlier. So in terms of uh the whole machine elf thing. So I don't know oh, if yeah. you know people follow if, if everybody that follows us on Twitter, I'm sure they know. I've mentioned something kind of um cryptically about it on my own feed, but uh, you, somebody put, put out a video talking about machine elves and how they're just in your head and it's just a byproduct or, or, you know, hallucinations, you know, or, um, your brain causing these hallucinations and you interacting with them, blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, you know, we don't have to name this person or whatever, but so then you responded in kind of just like a funny goofy way which you do to a lot of things you do it to my posts i've seen you do it to a lot of people's posts i just didn't i didn't see any harm in what you posted and all of a sudden this dude goes on like a war path and starts like attacking you your books your work calling your stuff pseudoscience and you're convincing people that there's these living breathing elves in these realms and blah 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 and like obviously this dude hasn't read your books um no, and certainly not. Didn't really have a philosophical bone in his body, from what I saw. So, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I I thought you handled it really well. I mean, you weren't mean or anything, even though he kept attacking you. Um, what what do you think's going on there? Is there is there a certain set of academia that's very um, dogmatic that these are manifestations in the mind, and maybe some of these people are getting irritated because of some of the more speculative or metaphysical talks or meta, you know metaphysics or whatever i mean like what's going on there yeah i think there's that there's, there's certainly an element of that i think um people like to be certain types of people anyway they like to be right uh about things they like to um feel that they have got kind of a handle on on the truth um, and, and they don't like anyone questioning that. And certainly when it comes to the machine elves, I mean, what I, I mean, basically, there's a bit of background. He, he made a video that claimed that the machine elves are kind of a common argument, which is that they are a, a McKenna effect, that people started seeing 
elves and elf-like beings in the DMT state because they'd heard Terence McKenna talking about uh, elves. Um, uh, and that, in fact, all it is is just your brain, you know, your brain, that old tired argument that your brain is amazing. It can, you've no idea about the potential of things that your brain can create. We don't know half of it. That's where the machine elves are, you know, in that little black box that we don't understand yet. But don't worry, we will. Uh, at some point in the future. Uh, that's not particularly satisfactory to me. And I pointed that out, um, that it's not acceptable or not uh, convincing for me when someone says, oh, it's just your, you know, your brain is, is more complicated than we can suppose. You know, that, uh, that, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, make, it's, it's throwing all of the things we don't know into this big box of promissory science that will eventually we'll, we'll kind of get to explaining. So that I, I've never been convinced by that approach uh, to what we can't explain. And order and also his assertion that the that it's a McKenna effect. I mean, that's something I've dealt with several times in the past, you know, I wrote a long essay that involved a discussion of this back in in 2016 or something so i'm not new to this argument you know uh, well, I do what i found <laughs> i found i found the most interesting thing was he felt like you were attacking his research he said but in reality he was just taking a common trope which is that that came from mckenna calling it his research and then being offended that you opposed it which was just a bizarre it, the whole thing just started off as like a miscommunication on bizarre foot and then you have a couple other psychedelic academics chime in like, hey, I love both of you. Can we just figure this out? Blah, 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 blah. Like, that's all nice and wonderful, but how about somebody having your fucking back grow a fucking backbone? <laughs> like, Jesus, like, I, I, I put out a cryptic tweet because I didn't want to bring more attention to it, but I'm just waiting for somebody bigger to be like, hey, calm down. Uh, you know, this is, you know, this is not how you do this. You have a, you either have a debate or you have... Um, look, I've seen you disagree with people. I heard, I saw you had a disagreement, uh, I think, on Psychedelics Today with Peter Sherstead about your first book, and I don't oh, think yeah, yeah. I don't think that that was like malicious. You guys disagree. I'm sure you still disagree, but that doesn't change the fact that you could still have a civil discussion or debate about it, right? I mean, I don't know why. Yeah, people... yeah, absolutely. I mean, me and Peter. I mean, he's a friend of mine, and uh, we. He's a he comes from the, the philosophy side of things, so he has the, he has that particular angle, and I have a very different angle. So it's where they meet and clash sometimes, which is kind of cool. Um, so we can have long discussions about this, and I think we both learn from each other. So yeah, of course, discussions and debate and disagreement uh, is is all part of. No one we're, we're, certainly with something like DMT, no one we're not all going to agree uh, on on different aspects of it, but. Um, when somebody points out that, well, elves have been and elf-like beings have been reported in the, the DMT report literature going back to the 1950s uh, and through to the 1960s and beyond, way before, you know, when Terence McKenna was still a little kid, long before he was talking about machine elves, you know, sure, he gave them that cute 
name that everyone well i mean but there's there's mythology to support there's the fae fairy people uh yeah. little people i mean this is a common archetype exactly. through, and and to to imagine that those people weren't partaking is crazy because we know a lot of those people were partaking in psychedelic uh rituals so right right so so you know these lilliputian type little beings so they give them different names they might take different forms but they seem to be unified in their character you know these li lively giggling mischievous trickstery kind of beings we're talking about whether you call them machina of course nobody called them machine elves before mckenna because he gave them that name but that's just his cute little name he called them tykes he called them you know he had lots of different little names for them and uh, i, but I the could see that though too i could see the machine aspect like coloring the experience or putting it in your subconscious so when you're in that space you're thinking like oh I thought these were just colors and patterns, but now I'm starting to see this mach whole machine thing. Like I could see something like that. Um, but yeah, again, I, I just the whole way it just went down. Like I said, I, I think there's a better way, especially coming from the psychedelic community and people have used psychedelics. You would imagine that they'd have a better way to handle these things. I don't know. That's why I, I made yeah, the comment I mean, like just because you use psychedelics doesn't make you a better person because it doesn't. There's so many assholes really in the psychedelic yeah. community, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, I think he's trying to, I don't know. I, mean, I get the feeling he's trying to establish himself as being the, the voice of the, the young, hip, psychedelic crowd. Um, uh, and uh, I, inter I put a little spanner in, in the works there and um questioned question you know, on the on this this subject and he didn't like it uh, i think he took offense also to the way that i responded to one of his arguments he didn't like the way i used a mixture of lowercase and uppercase <laughs> yeah i mean but 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 here's the thing uh <laughs> i had a take my take on it was just from looking at what what was going on his video he's trying to establish himself on youtube He's obviously doing the thing where you come for the top dog or somebody and you make noise and you're trying to get more YouTube followers. And, you know, like I felt like it was a little bit more of that, like take a shot at, you know, one of the old heads um, yeah. kind of a thing. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think I'm one of the old heads. Yet. No, I don't. I don't consider you that. But I'm just saying, like, I don't know that that, that dude seemed kind of young. So I don't know. Um, no, he's but, certainly younger than me. I mean, he's a PhD yeah. student. So yeah, he's younger than me. Sure. So yeah, I, again, I don't know. I don't. I don't have any ill will. I just thought that that whole thing was just bizarre to me. Like the whole interaction, it was just like a misunderstanding, and he should have stopped when he people were telling him that, and you know, whatever. Um, but let's so let's get to the meat of this thing. Are do, do you think these <laughs> things are internal, or do you think they're external? Now, before you answer that, I have never had DMT entity experiences. I have had entity experiences. One was hippie flipping i took a large dose of psilocybin and mdma uh, i had an entity experience on that um another time just mdma i had these sentient jellyfish flowing around like conveying messages and shit very bizarre i didn't actually know mdma could do that i took 300 milligrams which is kind of a large dose i think wow. but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh but yeah so and i had to leave a fish fish show a fish you know concert so um I've had a few other ones. I'm not going to mention them. But anyways, um, my point being that obviously this is not just subject to DMT. Um, what do you think is happening there? Do you think that the DMT entity thing is a very specific 
version of the entity or do you think they're all just kind of the same thing it's just easier to tap into that via the DM, via dmt yeah i think i mean certainly with with salvanorin as well the entity experiences are also very common uh and with high dose psilocybin i think what dmt does is it is, is it it's very efficient at breaking through into that that state where entity experiences are common but other drugs can get there but you know with, with mushrooms you need quite high doses to kind of reach that same kind of level so i don't think um um it's it's you know 100 percent dmt specific i just think dmt is very good at getting you into that that space now in terms of the um do i think they're all in your head or do i think they exist somehow out of your head at the same time i think the answer is is a mixture of the two possibly because even if these even if we are dealing with an intelligence that is from elsewhere that we're somehow communicating with or gaining access to your brain still has to kind of build a model of that being there's no reason to think that just because an entity appears as an elf or appears as a mantis or something, an insectoid creature, that that is their kind of true form or their true nature. This is just the brain using these deeply embedded uh, archetypal structures. You know, we all carry around um, this inherited neural architecture that has this uh, propensity, this inherent propensity to build certain kinds of structures, um, be it reptiles, snakes, spiders, uh, insects, uh, and also for some reason, these kind of small, lively, mischievous beings, trickstery beings as well. The brain, we, we all inherit that kind of archetypal toolbox from which we can construct um images um and so i think but that doesn't mean that they're purely that um i think they're purely that that we all carry have the idea that we all have this collective unconscious within which these beings are kind of swimming around and existing that's not that's not really what going back to young what he was really saying there it's just that we all we all inherit the same kind of brain uh, we all have markings of our evolutionary past. Uh, we all carry those um, what are often termed neuronostic structures, these basic patterns of uh, inherited connectivity that allow us um, to build you know, the, kind of the basic building blocks from which we construct our model of the world. Um, and and these are kind of these are ingrained, they're inherited. We all have them. And I think what's happening with DMT is that uh, your brain is drawing upon these these tools. It's 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 faced with this the highly unusual patterns of information from wherever, right? It could be from some other reality. It could be from um, uh, somehow emerging within uh, your cortex for other reasons. Uh, but your brain is faced with dealing with these extremely uh, 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 extraordinary patterns of information uh, and it, it is trying to find the best model that fits that that pattern of information uh, and sometimes that 
you know, an, an elf-like being, you know, uh, is, is the best way to do that. If the information has those kind of qualities, uh, then you might represent these beings as being elf-like. But they might differ in their form because archetypes are the basic propensity, the basic potentiality to build certain types of images and symbols. But they're also colored by your experience and your culture and what you learn. So um, a, if I asked you to draw an elf, um, you would draw a, a different picture than somebody in you know, an island or something. You know, they might draw a little green guy with a pointy hat. You might draw someone that looked more like Gollum or something. I don't know. Right. Um, we all the archetypes, as they kind of manifest, as they're drawn upon, they, they become colored and filled in by experience, by by culture on a very, on a very kind of individual basis. Um, so just so. So just because the elves have very different forms, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are kind of different or that they're purely individual. It just simply means that your brain is kind of is is, is building its own version, if you like, uh, of 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 the elf based upon um, that lowest level archetypal structure, but also uh, how it's been coloured and, and informed and, and, and filled in uh, by uh, uh, at the individual uh, level. So. So, so this is really the problem, I think, is that you can't get away from, even if we are dealing with uh, an intelligence from elsewhere, we can't get away from the fact um, that it, it's always going to have a personal aspect. It's always going to be, uh, your, brain is, uh, your brain is always going to have to draw upon what it can, what it knows, the kind of patterns and models that it has to kind of, uh, to create an image, to create a model of these beings, uh, and and that's that's why I I always say it's it's a combination. These 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 entities, even if they are purely external, even if they exist before you go into the DMT state, and for some reason you are communicating with some kind of advanced intelligence, this all what you actually see, what you actually experience. Uh, the, the form that the entities take are always going to have a personal uh, subjective component that you can't get away from. Um, so, so that's why it's so difficult to, to make, to draw a line between uh, and clearly kind of uh, differentiate between a pure hallucination, a pure fabrication of the cortex uh, and something else, something more unthinkable something far stranger yeah the um the the first part of that would be so like the tough part of answering that is what is consciousness because you're answering it as if though consciousness is a byproduct of our biology um and a resulting of the function of our brain right um when and i'm not saying that you believe this by the way i'm just saying how you just described it um in reality uh we know that we don't know what consciousness is it's called the hard problem of consciousness for a reason but let's just say hypothetically the brain is like some sort of receiver uh, and consciousness is non-local like maybe we're just a instrument um which kind of plays into kind of what we're talking about because um when you get into these realms let's say again it's non-local our consciousness and you were interacting with these things um well then what does that say about the nature of reality at that point right because 
this is the problem is is the hard problem yeah i think the so what the position i always come from is that um we don't understand what consciousness is we don't understand whether it, we don't know whether it is some um uh, it, it, whether it emerges from neural activity whether it's more fundamental whether as you suggest the uh, the brain is more like a, a receiver of consciousness we don't know the answer to that question what we know and which is what i always focus on is that consciousness that sub subjective consciousness has uh, it has content and it has structure uh, and it's full of information. That's what I focus on. What is the information content of the experience uh, and how is that patterned uh, and constructed by the cortex? So I'm not saying that the, that the subjective nature of the world is, is constructed by the brain, but it's shaped the, the content and the structure, the way that the, the experience is patterned and informed uh, is, is from neural activity. But it could well be that that's all the brain is doing, is it's shaping, receiving certain patterns. So just like a, a, a TV, you know, one of those old TVs that had an aerial, you know, it's receiving these patterns of um, uh, radio waves, and then it has to use those to kind of construct the image um you don't say that the the tv is 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 is, is uh, or that the the radio waves are emerging from the tv it's quite the opposite it's in the other direction and it could be something like that but we we just we, we don't know which is why i tend to avoid um talking too much about what we don't, don't know or making judgments so when people criticize me and say that I am an emergentist or a reductionist or that I am assuming that the brain can uh, the brain is responsible for the generation of consciousness I'm really not uh, all I'm doing is is taking what we know about subjective conscious experience which is that it is full of content it's information rich it has structure and that this structure is related to neural activity we know that when that the we can explain at least the informational structure the content uh, of 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 your subjective experience from neural activity but that doesn't mean that neural activity is generating consciousness itself if that makes sense yeah let me ask you um a question here so i a few years ago i read a paper that was brought to my attention uh, it was a PubMed paper on the pineal gland. And now we know, obviously, DMT is produced in the brain and cerebral spinal fluid, not just in a specific gland or part of the brain. Uh, but uh, in this, it talks about these little crystals uh, that form within the pineal gl gland, uh, hexagonal, cylindrical. There's all sorts of different shapes. And um, they produce, upon crushing or whatever, they produce an ultraviolet <laughs> like a fact um i guess my question would be um the paper talks about how it could could possibly work in the same way that like the small bones in your ear like otoconia I, I think that's how you pronounce it um pick up vibrations could that be some sort of mechanism for the brain could there be something in the brain that's picking up vibrations and uh almost like a you know piezoelectric effect or something along those lines um I think you'd have a hard time making that argument because, I mean, the pineal gland, obviously, it's it's become saturated with mysticism um, that, 
you can often lose sight of, of what the pineal gland, what we know the pineal gland is doing. I mean, right. it's, 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 it's a gland, obviously it's producing this hormone melatonin. It's very, very small side size of the end of your, your little finger. Um, and it's, it's not the way that it's connected into your, your brain. Um, suggests that it's not the seat of consciousness, I would say. Um, it's probably not big enough to producing large amounts of DMT. Um, it is, of course, um, sensitive to to light indirectly. Uh, in that, What about in like the, because I know that's what Rick was studying before he actually started studying uh, DMT. We've talked, had him on a few times to talk about that. What if, though, this, my point was the pineal gland, not that it's causing consciousness in general, but what if it has placed some function in like let's say dreaming we always wonder like what's dreaming what if it's picking up some sort of and and you're in a a sleep state or a meditative state that then it's picking up something and well that's what's causing the dreams or something like that yeah i know what you mean i think again it's um you'd have to think about what's the mechanism here so even if the the pineal gland these crystals within the pineal gland were able to pick up um, information from some you know, electromagnetic or other source, how would that then feed into, how would that then, that information connect into uh, the rest of the cortex? Um, right. You know, I, I, I don't know the answer is, is the question. I mean, it's something you could test. I mean, if, if someone really believes that, then... Oh, I'm not testing. Nobody's going to let me test that. I'm just walking to a lab. Um, hey, I got these pineal crystals. <laughs> Right. Um, so I think a lot of it comes to, and that's part of the problem, I guess, is that people are very willing to um, suggest and people will often assert these things and they will talk about decalcifying your pineal and uh, make a lot of rather bold claims about what the pineal is Well, yeah, is a lot doing. of that stuff's woo-woo. That's, yeah, know, yeah. a lot of that's nonsense. Yeah. Um, so I think I, I, there's nothing wrong with having kind of wild ideas, but you have to at some point bring them down to to earth so to speak and say okay let's think about how first of all what's the hypothesis here how how are we going to test it and then let's test it let's right. see what effect we we expect it to have and and a lot of people don't um don't do that or don't have the ability to formulate the kind of hypothesis or don't have that basic neuroscientific underpinning that basic neuroscientific understanding to know what kind of experiments you should do with that uh you know you get the same thing with people someone once wrote to me and said is it that dmt is affecting the retina so that you can see um other frequencies right that's a often claimed right that the dmt is allowing you to see outside of the narrow frequency range that our eyes can see and my response to that is well if that's where these entities are then we can pick them up with uv detectors right you know or other detectors you know we have equipment yeah. to detect outside the visual range so if these entities or beings or worlds were existing outside literally outside of the visual frequency range we should be able to detect them using other equipment but we don't you don't see yeah i mean else. a lot of that <laughs> would fall under like psi research or something that like dean Radin or somebody like that studies because there's really nobody studying that kind of stuff out there um, I know I mentioned this weird thing that I get when I'm in meditation and I've talked to other people about it too, these lights, these flow, I don't know, it's hard to explain. And I, I asked Strassman about it and he said maybe phosphines or something like that. But, um, mm-hmm. 
I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, I've talked to a lot of people that experience that. So maybe that is the case. I don't know enough about it. But... Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're if you're seeing light, you, your brain doesn't need physical, actual light entering the eyes for you to see light. Obviously, when you spoke DMT, it's a very, it's a very brightly lit space. Uh, but of course, there's no light entering the eyes. But as long as you're activating, if you're activating certain parts of the visual cortex, then you will be seeing um, light. You will be seeing colors and it will appear to be um, a very light filled experience. But you don't need, you know, the brain is in a dark box. Um, it never has direct access to light. It only has access to those patterns of um, electrochemical signals that are entering the brain from the retina. Um, but so you don't need light to experience light. You just need to activate those certain parts of the visual cortex that will give you the experience of light. Another woo question. Um, okay. What about this sort of like um, these light retreats or not like complete darkness retreats where people are like locking themselves up for six days straight or whatever? There was some guy montauk chia or i forget the guy's name he was on yeah that's those, him. Like, yeah, I know him. um claiming that if you're in darkness long enough your body starts to naturally produce dmt in these crazy states i the reason why i ask that is there's many accounts of, in the ancient world and esoteric texts of people retreating to a cave and then you know one specifically i can think of is leonardo da vinci retreating to a cave and coming out some sort of ascended master um not necessarily that they're being given some special knowledge or whatever, but maybe inducing some sort of endogenous psychedelic experience and then coming away with that. You know, I could see that giving you an upper hand or um, an advantage over other people back then or something along those lines. Yeah, I don't, I mean, uh, you know, I've spoken before about the possibility that, I mean, so the pineal gland, we could start there. Um, the pineal gland obviously is activated by darkness in that your pineal gland starts producing melatonin to go down, it becomes night. That's its kind of signal. Um, so if, 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 big if, the pineal was producing DMT, one might argue that, that extended periods in complete darkness uh, would elevate DMT levels in the brain. Um, but you, I don't think you have to necessarily invoke the pineal. There might be other mechanisms. You know, if, if your brain is in a, um, a sensory deprived state, the brain doesn't like to be inactive. The brain is, um, this is why people use, you know, sensory deprivation tanks and, and will often have quite visionary experiences within them. When your brain is cut off from sensory information, um, then it, 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 it can still, it can start to, uh, construct realities uh, that that are not mapped to the normal waking world or not mapped to the environment in a normal way. Uh, and so I'm, I, I'm certainly open to the idea that extended periods in darkness might well induce visionary experiences that you couldn't experience easily, certainly if you didn't have access to kind of exogenous molecules. Um, one can imagine obviously it's not as efficient and takes a long time and to some extent quite dramatic um, but you know going into a dark cave uh, for weeks on end and cutting yourself from all sources of light um, that would probably induce some kind of visionary experience and you know you can think about cave art ancient cave art um, you know I've often thought about whether the reason they were painted on these these completely inaccessible 
hidden uh, areas of, of the earth. They're not painted on the walls outside in the open where people can look at them and see how beautiful they are. For some reason, they were painting them deep, deep down in the earth. And there might be a number of explanations for that, you know, anthropological explanations that I don't know about. But it's also possible um, that they were in there because it induced this kind of visionary state in this in this dark in, in pure darkness well they're uh, telling they tell us in some of them the Tassil Ajir the uh, bee shaman Terence McKenna's famous uh, bee shaman from Algeria from Food of the Gods and then you have Salva Pascuala Spain 6000 BC roughly um, uh, Salosa Hispanica clearly um, depicted next to a bowl. So while you know they're showing you that they're taking these mushrooms, it's not necessarily endogenous. We know that they're obviously trying to tell you something. Hey, we know about this. You know, we know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that using these molecules in in combination with darkness can be certainly be a very powerful technique if you want to really enhance and eliminate the external external sources of visual sensory information then going into a dark place and taking mushrooms would be a very good idea it's a good way to have a very profound uh, experience i think but not recommended for beginners yeah i saw that uh, aubrey marcus guy did some sort of darkness retreat and now he's got aaron Rodgers, the quarterback doing it aaron Rodgers said he's not going to He's not going to, you know, figure out his future until he does this, uh, <laughs> this darkness retreat. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if this this dude flips out or what. But uh, I remember in high school, actually, uh, some weird kid we went to school with uh, told Maurice, um, "You want to really flip out?" He's like, "Your parents go away for the weekend. Lock yourself in the car." He's like, "You'll really freak out." And this kid apparently locked himself in the car for a weekend and had a totally psychedelic experience so there you go you see there's more than one way to skip that as they say um uh before we wrap it up here i did want to ask you one more thing which is um have you heard of dr stephen barker i know this guy john chavez who runs dmt quest channel uh did that documentary uh the dmt quest documentary and in there they're talking about all the latest you know study rat studies and my studies from u of m and um, how they found DMT in the brain and cerebral spinal fluid, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then there was a study apparently at LSU by Stephen Barker, uh, which indicates that maybe DMT is the precursor to all psychedelics and that all the different psychedelic, whether it's serotonergic or whatever, uh, play off of D or the DMT enzymes or whatever. That That is actually, let's say it's psilocybin or whatever. It's all getting broken down funneled towards and i'm probably butchering his hypothesis a little bit here but the idea that dmt is actually at the root of all of these compounds and experiences say is saying that when you take psilocybin it's it's converted to dmt yeah like tryptamines are all broken down into the same thing Uh, okay i mean um yeah it depends on on the the metabolic route i mean certainly DMT might have an inactive metabolic product that is that is shared with psilocybin, um, but that wouldn't necessarily mean that um, the DMT was responsible for the effects of psilocybin. However, if psilocybin was converted in vivo inside the body to DMT, um, then that would 
potentially be responsible for some of the effects. But I think the biochemically, I'd have to read the paper. I'm, I'm ashamed to say I've not read that paper, so I, I can't tell you exactly what he was getting at. Um, I mean, he's, a, he's an analytical chemist, Stephen Barker. So he's very good with um, analyzing the concentrations and, and teasing apart the molecular constituents of 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 um of plants and 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 other kind of chemical mixtures i'm not sure that he's a neuroscientist as such but if you're interested in the kind of the, the metabolism of these molecules he's he's certainly the one to ask so he'd probably know better than i would but i think converting psilocin which is the active uh, component of mushrooms so psilocybin is converted dephosphorylated to psilocin so to get to dmt you then have to remove this oxygen this hydroxyl group from well, yeah, isn't psilocin, psilocin's one molecule away, right? All you have to do is, like, as you just mentioned. Yes. So psilocin, to get some psilocin to DMT, it's, so psilocin is 4-hydroxy DMT. So to get from psilocin to DMT, you need to remove that oxygen, which is not actually a normal process in the human body. Normally, what you would do is you'd attach something else to the hydroxyl and make it more water soluble. Um, so I'd be surprised, very surprised if um, uh, psilocin was being converted to DMT in the body. And of course, that could never work with something LSD, which certainly, you know, it has a, a much uh, more complex ring structure. That's certainly not going to be converted to DMT. So I don't think we can say that DMT is responsible for the effects of LSD and you know all the other molecules. I think yeah. they all have again. I'd have you know, they to all work by yeah. the same mechanism. Yeah, yeah, they all work by the same mechanism broadly, and that they're all uh, uh, binding to the same kind of receptor sites. But they all do, they all work in a slightly different way. Um. All right. Well. Uh, yeah. Let's wrap it up here. I did want to ask you one more thing, and I'm trying to think. Um. It was just a basic. Um. Maybe, oh, I know what it was. Um, have you ever heard of Inosibi Aragruasins? Um, Originations, maybe, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Inosibi Originations. I, I always love the... <laughs> it's a crazy word, right? Yes, <laughs> I can do. Yeah, crazy, yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. This is So this is one, one of the mushrooms that contains a very high concentrations of this Originasin. Um, I can... Uh, Someone, people always tell me what it, how it's pronounced. I always forget. But anyway, originacin maybe, uh, which is this trimethylated version of 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 of, of psilocin, of psilocybin. Um, but um, it's probably doesn't get into the brain. I don't think uh, with those three methyl group, it has a positive charge on the nitrogen. Yeah, because the paper I read was up. talking about how it could be like the CBD to THC, but for the psilocybin realm where it could enhance yeah. or have an entourage effect or something along those lines yeah i mean i, I wrote a, a post on my Substack, three-part um post articles on on the so-called entourage effect in mushrooms and originacin is um it, it's probably if if there is a cbd type element something that's more bodily uh something that's more outside the brain uh, that has effect on the nervous system the peripheral nervous system um rather than the central nervous system. I think that originacin would be the molecule there because it does seem to me, looking at its structure, that it would have a very hard time getting into the brain and working in the same way that psilocin or DMT does. Um, so, yeah, I think um, I've never consumed that particular variety of mushrooms, so I can't 
tell you what it feels like. Yeah, I'm interested. I want to try it for sure. Um, all right, well, let's. Uh, one more question from a fan. We got one person hanging around. Donnie Brasco. He says, let's see here. Have you heard of the new molecule they discovered by uh, adding freebase DMT to magic mushrooms as they grow? It says, if you freed psilocybe mushrooms, 5-MeO DMT, or if you yeah. feed, I'm sorry, if you feed psilocybe mushrooms, 5-MeO DMT, they will convert to 5-HO, 5-MeO DMT. What about that? Yeah, so this is, yeah, again, I wrote a, a, a Twitter thread on this. So this is psilomethoxin is what they call it. So it's like it's like the molecular combination of a five meo uh, with uh, with psilocin. So so five meo DMT has a five methoxy group uh, on the the ring. It's a ring of the fi- a, fi- a methoxy group on the five position. Psilocin has a methoxy uh, hydroxyl group on the four position. Yeah, so when you put them both together, you get four hydroxy five methoxy DMT. Um, which you can get by feeding, as they say, DM, if you feed 5-MeO to these mushrooms, they will add that hydroxyl group in that four position, which is what they do. They have the enzymes for that. So then you get this silomethoxin molecule, uh, which, you know, there's like a church of silomethoxin that's, that's established themselves. And uh, apparently they have very wonderful experiences with it. Um, I've never tried it. Um, there is a small possible risk when you have these two oxygen bearing groups at that position on the ring we know that um that they can be neurotoxic um so the 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 four five um hydroxyl variant is is known to be neurotoxic and is used to actually cause lesions in experimental animals brains Uh, but there's no evidence that this silomethoxin has the same neurotoxicity because that has this methyl group uh, so it's five methoxy, not five hydroxy. So it's it, it's probably fine, but we just don't know um, um, whether I'm keen to try it. I'm not sure. I mean, nature is. I know you're still you're it, still down so. to try that Salvinorin B uh, methoxy or e, methoxy ether, whatever that is, that extended state. Oh God! Yeah, Salvia. yeah. That's a while ago now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should probably write about that. I might make a post on that. Yeah, that's really cool. It lasts like like Salvinorin, but lasts for like hours and hours. And yeah, because we were talking about that the last time you were on. We were talking about uh, yeah, yeah, smoking yeah. salvia versus eating or chewing the quids, and how you were talking yeah. about how the the lingual contact uh, reinitiates the experience as opposed to smoking it once and flipping out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, man. Uh, always fun having you on. You're a wealth of knowledge. I love just asking you random questions I've been wondering about because you actually study this stuff. So um, you are, of course, welcome on anytime. Uh, please, please, please go by um, Reality Switch Technologies. This thing's thick. It's juicy. It's uh, it's an amazing, you know, it's an amazing book. If you're curious on all the mechanisms and all the different uh, receptors and the way that you know, these things play off of our own consciousness and how they could be used to, um, you know, induce these states. Check that out. Also this one, alien information theory. Uh, again, you see all the stuff happening out there with balloons and UFOs and stuff like that. Go make contact tonight, folks, read this book, you know? Uh, so, uh, but yeah, you can check out all of Andrew's links down below at alieninsect.com. Check out his Substack. Uh, he's a wonderful follow, um, on Twitter at, at alien insect. 
And I, again, I have all the links down below. If you want to support Mind Escape, all you have to do is click the link tree link down below. We have all of our stuff on there, merch store. I have a new shirt where we're going to donate uh, all the proceeds to charity. Um, Chris Wolford said something the other day. He said, forget the balloons. So I put a forget the balloons in quotation marks with a flying saucer below it. Um, and uh, yeah, we've got our documentary coming out. It's going to be premiering at the Roswell UFO Expo. You can buy tickets currently right now online at uh, ufoexpo.com uh, we will premiering our documentary the 10th and i think it's actually on the 11th is when we're premiering it which is it's saturday uh and andrew is actually a big part of the documentary uh, our documentary is called as within so without from ufos to dmt and uh, he will be a big portion of the dmt part as well as some of the crossover because let's face it there's a lot of weirdness happening in these realms so um Anything else? Oh, yeah, check out our other podcast, the Roswell UFO Symposium. I do it with Shane, who was on here earlier, and our other buddy Toby, who's currently in the ER. He got bit by some sort of weird bug or scorpion, so hopefully you're feeling better out there, Toby. And, um, yeah, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else here. Oh, new logo. Shout out to Aubrey. Thank you so much for the new logo. I love it. Um, and if anybody needs any sort of uh, creative work, whether it be a logo or animation or anything like that please check out aubrey's links i will add it down below and again thank you so much andrew um yeah i'm really looking forward to what you put out next and uh yeah let us know if you need anything you're always welcome on the show thank you very much mike um i'll see you again yeah maybe maurice will be back next time he's currently editing I, I've got him in the workshop talking about elves. I've got little Maurice in the uh, the work, <laughs> workshop editing our documentary. So, um, all right, I'm going to play our documentary trailer as we leave. And again, we love everybody. Stay safe out there, and we'll catch you next time. Peace. Is it real or is it not? That's what you're asking me. I still, to this day, can't find any rational explanation for what I saw. Extremely intelligent, apparently highly advanced, hyper-technological being. I think that we just don't look at the perception of reality in the right way yet. It got very close to the point that I could see just one big light and then it stopped and then it shot up in the sky you know you know you're not dreaming but you wonder how real any of it really is it dawned on me it, it was real this this took place but then i still didn't do anything with it never said anything to anybody there is some mind altering aspect to these ufo encounters uh, a lot of people get a sense of missing time I noticed that these three stars were kind of in a formation, it was a triangular formation. Condensed into entities or beings that uh, you interact with who are sentient. The chemicals which are going into our brain are making the unconscious archetypes come alive. How things evolve from pure energy to matter. Definitely was kind of a paradigm shifting moment. And as we continue to evolve in our own consciousness, 
we will perceive of new modes of interpretation, but that may be dependent upon how this supposed phenomenon reveals itself to us. Uh, I'm not sure why we discredit the human experience when it's not in alignment with our current belief system. It's important to consider that one, we don't really understand what our minds do under the influence of psychedelics. Uh, they all attest to the reality of some other realm. You call it the paranormal, doesn't matter what you call it, spiritual realm, supernatural, metaphysical, doesn't matter. The fact that we're essentially vibrating energy in a sense, and that when this experience is over, that that particular energy transforms and doesn't die because it can't die, fills me with a lot of comfort that there is something else after this so-called here and now. They show you how much of your reality is subjective and fragile and capable of being influenced by a psychedelic drug. Coming from a scientific background, you come up with explanations that range from geomagnetic to atmospheric to something that's physical in nature. There's a lot more out there that we don't know than we do know. So the entire system, the human body, is effectively a stimulation response machine. I think something's here. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it's from. It could be extraterrestrials. Until it made a full rotation and then it just hit an insane speed and just shot up straight into the atmosphere. I think that there's compelling evidence that psychedelics have played a significant role in human evolution over a long period of time. The our view of reality, the reality that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis seems to be this very, very thin slice of something far larger and far more as within so without from ufos to dmt